MakeReel specializes in creating immersive learning solutions across a range of technologies. To download their latest academic paper on how to turn learners into activists, visit makereel.co.uk slash activists. Hello, I'm Kate Fitzgerald from the Learning Hack Team, welcoming you to a new episode of Great Minds on Learning. In this highly acclaimed series, Professor Donald Clark, internationally famous author, blogger and entrepreneur, joins John Helmer to explore two and a half thousand years of thought and theorising about learning from the Greeks to the geeks. This episode was recorded live at the Online Educa Conference in Berlin and explores ideas of the extended mind. Where do our thoughts live? And if, as some theorists contend, they do not observe physical limitations that extend to our technology tools and physical surroundings, what are the implications for learning? this episode of Great Minds on Learning. Our subject is the extended mind. Donald, when you first suggested this topic, I sort of thought, well, I get it, yes, my pencil is an extension of my mind, but can there really be that much to say beyond that? However, when I began to read your blogs, I saw at once that no, there is a lot more to say, and yes, this subject is a bona fide rabbit hole. Um, So come on board. So before we plunge into this rabbit hole after you, give us an overview, please. Uh, what do we mean by extended mind, and what are we going to cover in this episode? Sure, yeah. So when I was describing just a, a minute or two ago cognitive psychology, there is a great trap in cognitive science, which is to regard the mind as just consciousness, purely rational beings, and you describe the mental events of people. Now, I am a big fan of cognitive science, and I think that's incredibly useful. But (laughs) there are other things in life and learning, and there are a whole number of theorists for a long time now, you know, for decades really, who have said, well, hold on a minute, don't stick to this narrow cognitive model. There are other features other than waking consciousness. One, for example, is sleep. So we're going to talk about that. Surprisingly, when you look at the research, all sorts of interesting things happen in learning, not only before sleeping, but during sleeping and after sleeping. So we'll discuss that a little bit, because that's often forgotten. You know, we're unconscious, but we're still consolidating memories. We'll discuss that one. There is your body. You're all sitting here in this room looking at us doing this podcast, but you feel the chair, you know, you feel the, the, the place, as it were. You know, the lights, the heat, the temperature, and so on. So there are those who believe strongly in embodied learning. In other words, that the emotions that rise, for example, are very, very strong in people. I blame this really on Benjamin Bloom. Many of you have probably heard of Benjamin Bloom and that silly little coloured pyramid, which Benjamin Bloom never actually wrote. By the way, he he would have hated... he, He never published a pyramid ever in his life. Uh, and actually, Anderson came along and uh, actually rewrote it. And because putting knowledge at the bottom, you know that knowledge stuff, that's a waste of time, isn't it? We can't wait to get people to critical thinking. <laughs> but of course, you can't do any critical thinking without knowledge. You know, I'm not going to turn around in you and say, well, give me some critical thinking on data science then. And you don't know anything about data. That would be a waste of time, as it were. So I blame that sort of focus again on cognitive science and Bloom. Remember, Bloom had two other major bits of work on psychomotor and emotive and effective learning, which we all forget. We just do the one-third, forget all that stuff about you actually have to do things in the real world. Uh, You have emotions. We scrapped all that, and we focused on the cognitive side. So all these extended mind people, going back to that question, John said... And we have a podcast on that. And and we have a podcast on learning styles as well. Yeah, I think... So there's that embodied thing, and then there are other psychologists that we'll discuss in this session which are to do with ecological, uh, ecological psychology, which is to do with, you know, that whole perception of the world as you move through it. It really is important. You're thinking about the room and the 3D space you're in right now. You know that you're a multisensory being, as it were. And then we get really interesting, just to finish off there, because we're going to discuss all those people who think, actually, when I pick up this pen, so the philosopher Chalmers would discuss, he thinks that that is no different from my hand, in a sense. In my consciousness, I'm not aware of it. When I'm writing, 
actually these tools become a part of your conscious learning mind. And he says, well, the same might be true of a smartphone. The same might be true if you have a brain implant. So if you have a brain-computer interface, uh, we might get to the stage where it's not a pure cognitive event in the brain. It may very well be that there are AI agents out there who are teaching you, and it's all one part of a process. So you get in this almost like layers of an onion extension away from purely cognitive ability and cognitive thought into the extended mind. Does that make sense? Marvellous. It's going to be a wild ride, people. <laughs> Strap in. So here's an unexpected place to start with sleep. And our first two theorists here, I, I have to apologise, all of these uh, theorists are white guys. Anyone who has listened to the, uh, the podcast and some of the other episodes now, that, that, that it is more diverse. There are, we, we, we have more women when we can, uh, more ethnic minorities. This one particularly is because of that. But it's the pool that we're fishing in and, and it reflects kind of ac academia as it is. So Robert Stickgold, 1945, he was born, and Matthew Walker, 1972 or 73. It's kind of unusual to come across somebody who's still alive and doesn't know when he was born. But that, that's the dates from Wikipedia. Uh, Robert Stickgold is a professor of psychiatry at the um, Harvard School of uh, Medical School and the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Centre. He's a sleep researcher. His work focuses on the relationship between sleep and learning. Stickgold was born in Chicago. His doctorate was in biochemistry. Fun fact, he's also a published science fiction author. Uh, Professor Stickgold was a colleague and mentor to Matthew Walker. That's him on the right. An English sleep researcher, now professor of neuroscience and psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. Sleep can take you a long way. Walker's 2019 TED Talk, entitled Sleep is Your Superpower, was hugely popular, watched by millions. Donald, I'm hoping that your exploration of this duo's work will provide answers to a question that has bugged many of us, I'm sure, since it was so memorably posed by Billie Eilish in the title of her Grammy Award-winning debut album, When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go? <laughs> yeah, I think Strickgold and Walker are interesting because they explored a whole range of things that happen while you're sleeping. This is one of those bits of theory that really I took on board personally. And uh, there are a couple of really inter interesting things in the literature. If you're sleeping in this hotel, have no light source. I'm one of those people who cover up the little red light on the television and the, the alarm clock next to the bed because there's quite good evidence that that's really bad for sleeping. Uh, so you know, I'm one of those people who do that. But another thing in the research is quite interesting, and this is uh, what happens if you're learning before you sleep. So there's very good evidence that if you learn something immediately before you fall asleep, you have a much higher chance of retention because that knowledge goes into the hippocampus, which is a holding cache for memory. And while you're sleeping, it starts to become consolidated. So if you really want to remember something, and you can put yourself to the test, you know, give yourself the kings and queens of England or you know, the pharaohs of Egypt or something, try this just before you go to sleep, and you'll find it's a much more successful technique than doing it at other times of the day because the hippocampus is the key holding pattern here. And we have very, very good evidence for NREM sleep, a particular type of sleep, being a consolidator of memory. So while you're sleeping, you're learning. Well, learning in the sense of consolidating memory. And remember, if you, like most cognitive scientists, believe that learning is nothing more than a relatively permanent or long-term change in long-term memory, that's the goal for everybody. If that's your definition of learning, which I think is a good one, then we should pay attention to the fact that we do uh, learn while we sleep. So you can do these comparative trials. You know, people take a nap, compare it to the group that doesn't take the nap. The people who take the nap score really quite considerable, 20, 30% higher than those who don't take a nap and then have to are tested afterwards. But there are other things in sleep as well. And a really interesting one that Strickland did was, can you actually teach people while you're sleeping? Here's an interesting one. Yeah, so, so they put little speakers behind the bed and they tuned it to brainwaves. There was all sorts of, I won't go into the mathematics of this, but there were certain EEG type rhythms they tapped into. And they found a significant effect on, you know, this is people who hadn't been taught this stuff. But if you waken up people who had not had that experience, compared them who did have a couple of speakers next to their ears in the bed, the people had picked up stuff unconsciously while they were sleeping. It's quite an unusual thing, really. 
you think about it, but it does seem to have an effect. It's not massive, but it's, it's an effect uh, nevertheless. Another really interesting piece of cognitive science in sleeping is the fact that you can train people to forget. So if you give one group a list of words and say, remember this list of words, and you give them a second list of words and say, I want you to forget those words. Okay, that's quite an interesting task. Actually, we forget almost everything in learning. That's another problem. <laughs> but actually, if you say that to people and then allow them to sleep, during sleep, your brain, oddly, is actively forgetting the things you were told to forget. It knows that you're meant to forget those things. It's a really interesting proactive effect after you've fallen asleep that it carries on. So you have a sort of rational process actually going on where language is having an effect. It's very peculiar. But it's a very strange effect in many ways, and quite that really surprised the researchers when they, when, they, when they found this. So that auditory tone, all, the, all these things are starting to happen. We've had a great deal of very intense research on this for the last decade. But it has a significant impact. You know, if you get a 20% increase in retention, I mean, normally in education, if you get 1%, 2%, you're published. <laughs> 20%? This is quite astounding, you know? So this is why people are so keen on getting kids to have a proper night's sleep. An interesting side thing on that as well, I, 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 this is just a personal thing really, is I, uh, I went on one of these, I only eat in a 10 hour period, you know, so I don't eat until 10 in the morning and then I will make sure I don't eat after eight o'clock. If you restrict your eating uh, in the evening to like six, seven, eight, you have a much better long-term and deeper sleep. It means that your body's not sort of got food and weight, you know, your expectations are that you're alive and kicking as it were. So there's uh, some other physiological things associated with sleep that are beneficial for learning here as well. Because solid seven, eight hours of sleep is what gives you these benefits. And if you've got a little alarm clock in the room, you might not know it, but it is wakening you up regularly. So put, your, put a booklet over it or whatever. That helps. Uh, that's so interesting. I'm <laughs> conscious of the fact there, there are sleep rhythms throughout the day, aren't there? I mean, th this period now is, is known as the idiot hour. Um, after two o'clock, after everybody's had a bit of lunch or the blood rushes to your stomach, um, and they try, when you schedule conferences, you try not to um, schedule anyone too monotonous in, in this bit. So I'm looking around the room um, for anybody who seems to be nodding off, and we know who you are, and there will be a test afterwards, <laughs> <laughs> purely for scientific purposes. Nothing to worry about. Is that all to say about sleep for now? Should we move on to the next one? Or? Yeah, sure, let's go. Yeah, OK. So our next topic really couldn't be more different. Having looked inward to the slumbering mind, we now look outwards into the world outside our bedroom. And two theorists who saw behaviour as situated in ecological contexts and systems. I don't know why I write this stuff to be so hard to say. Roger Garlock Barker was a social scientist, a founder of environmental psychology, and a leading figure in the field for decades. Born in Iowa, PhD from Stanford, but did most of his work in the Midwest. James Jerome Gibson was an American psychologist and one of the most important contributors to the field of visual perception an interest that was sparked by train rides he took with his railroad worker father. Gibson challenged the idea that the nervous system actively constructs conscious visual perception and instead promoted ecological psychology, and he was a big critic of uh, behaviourism. That's his fun fact. Donald Gibson was perhaps the more conventional figure of these two, but with Barker, I get a Wizard of Oz vibe, um, a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Sorry, this is a lead into the, to the next story. Or maybe we are. Let's start with the rather amazing story of his career. Yeah, so there are two people here, Barker and Gibson. And you may never have heard of these. How many people have heard of Barker and Gibson as psychologists? Nobody in the room at all. And it doesn't surprise me. But if you do go into sports colleges, people who are obsessed by sports and the psychology of sports all know these two. And they're called ecological psychologists or ecological uh, psychology is the field they work in. But they were very different, a bit like myself and John, very different sort of people. Barker, there's a great autobiography called The Outsider of Barker. Barker was an academic and sort of gave it up and moved to a tiny town in Kansas. Uh, I've got the name of it here called Oxalusa. It only had 740 people in it. And he moved there and spent his whole life there. And all he did was study the behavior of people in that tiny town. He spent his whole life, and he was very famous when he published these data, as famous as Skinner and other people, although he was highly critical of behaviorism and cognitive science. And that's what's important about these two figures. Going back to what I said at the beginning, 
that notion that we're just cognitive, rational beings, and if only we study internal mental events, we'll have sussed human nature. They thought that the opposite was true, and that actually radically sort of situated learning was important to them. You know, you learn in a real place, in a real context. We move around in a 3D world when you walk along that corridor. He thought that perception itself, perception and action were the same thing for Gibson. He didn't separate them, whereas cognitive theorists would balk at that idea. So that radical situationist learning thing was the big contrast between Barker and Gibson. So this is commonly called ecological psychology. There are other more radical people come along and think that that stretches out into general cultural norms as well. There are even people who believe that uh, that you've got an uh, ecological view of the world which is global and that climate change might even affect this stuff. So you get some pretty radical and out, out there sort of people in this field. Nevertheless, the sports psychologists are very, very good in this because they recognize, so my son Callum does Taekwondo and if you watch his coaches, they're not thinking about the internal mental thoughts or language he's using. They're interested in the, that tight link between performance and action, thought and perception and action in the sport which is why they're so keen on these psychologists. But it's a form, this takes you out of the internal inside of the brain towards the real world and situated learning. And I think that's why these two guys are really worth studying. It's, it, they have a, a nice little line, which is ask not what's inside your head, but what is your head inside of? Everything is situated, everything has a context, especially learning. And they think that we ignore that at our peril. And then they looked at behavioural traits. They think that behavioural traits, for example, students in a lecture hall know what the rules of the lecture hall are. You know, sitting in rows, not speaking when the person's lecturing, waiting on the Q&A. That's a set of social conventions, as it were. These people think that really matters in learning. They actually think that's an incredibly destructive thing in learning, actually. But uh, that's, that's their view of the world. So we've got this extension out of traditional cognitive psychology. So how much of what people usually think of as going on inside the brain did they think was not going inside on the the brain was actually going on in in terms of our interaction with the external environment well they thought it, the odd thing here is the language language is promiscuous you know it tends to produce these binary splits the a cartesian split between mind and body or mind and brain or whatever so these guys were dead against that cartesian view of the world and in a sense cognitive psychology falls into that trap a little bit of regarding the mind as just consciousness and a series of internal events. Mm. That's quite Cartesian in its outlook. These guys think you cannot separate the brain from the body, nor indeed can you separate the body from the external environment. Mm. So they break down these uh, binary oppositions because they think that language interferes. Their language is the, the villain here. It's constantly trying to get us to create oppositions. When they're in real life, if you're doing a sport, or even when you're sitting at here and now, you know, it isn't. You're sitting, you're aware of the fact that you're sitting. That's part of your being here now. They don't make a distinction between what's going on inside of your head and your bodily embodiment and context in which you sit, which is an interesting view. I don't agree with it, by the way, but that's their view. And why do you think that they, they kind of faded away from view? They were much more famous at one time and now almost completely unknown. Was that to do with the influence of cognitivism and, this, uh, and the rise of using computers as a metaphor for, for the way the brain works was... was yeah, that, I think that's right. So you have the, the end of behaviorism, which is really Noam Chomsky in 1959, so it kills behaviorism, really. And then you have the rise of cognitive science. Uh, so we move away from animal experimentation into human experimentation and verbalizing what you're thinking inside your brain. And of course, that's still the dominant paradigm today. The big paradigm is cognitive science. There's no doubt about that. So these people got squeezed out again. And now we're raising them for the dead. So let's move on now to Andy Clark, 1957, he was born, um, year after me, and David Chalmers, 1966. Uh, a bit closer to home for you and me, Donald, is the first of this duo. Andy Clark is a British philosopher who is Professor of Cognitive Philosophy at the University of Sussex, my alma mater in Brighton, where we both live. Prior to this, he was a professor of uh, philosophy and chair in logic and metaphysics at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, 
uh, director of the Cognitive Science Program at Indiana University and previously taught at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Clark is one of the founding members of the CONTACT collaborative research project whose aims to investigate the role environment plays in shaping the nature of conscious experience. So you'll see an immediate link back to the, to the last pair there. Uh, David John Chalmers, uh, we've encountered before in our episode about VR on this podcast um, and the metaverse. He's an Australian philosopher and cognitive scientist specialising in philosophy of mind, which is very sexy at the moment, philosophy, I'm told, and philosophy of language. He's a professor of philosophy and neuroscience at New York University, as well as co-director of NYU's Centre for Mind, Brain and Consciousness, born in Sydney, grew up in Adelaide. Chalmers is best known for formulating the hard problem of consciousness, and there were a few hard problems to get our heads around in that last episode. Donald, how do they relate to our theme, these two, and what can they tell us about learning? Okay, well, these, these two, they're really philosophers, not cognitive scientists or psychologists, but they wrote a very, very famous paper in 1998 called The Extended Mind. It had massive impact in philosophy and in psychology. And they did a thought experiment in that paper, which is imagine yourself with a screen in front of you and you have a little slot for a triangle. And you have these shapes, a circle, a triangle, and a rectangle. And you have to obviously move the right shape into the slot, okay? Now, they, they, said, they asked you to imagine the following. First of all, just use your mind. So you look at the triangle, you move all that the triangle, you can use that just cognitively. You can think about it and achieve the task. Or you can give them a little button where they rotate it, a mouse or a tracker, so they actually move it across the screen and put it in. Or they ask you to imagine, imagine if you've got a little implant that actually does it for you automatically. You just think it and you see it happening. And that's actually possible now. We'll come to that in a minute. And what they came to the they have a number of these examples, and they come to a very interesting conclusion, that the cognitive act is exactly the same in all three things. In other words, even though this is part of the external, you're doing different things, sometimes you're not using your hands at all, as it were, it's still the same act in consciousness. Now, they take this further and say, when you're using a pen or a pencil or a smartphone, it's exactly the same phenomenon. It's just an extension of your body. Why regard it as different from your hand or your fingers? In consciousness, it's just a thing that you're learning from. And then, of course, uh, Chalmers writes a book called Reality Plus. If you're interested in VR or the metaverse or any of that jazz, buy this book. Because he's a philosopher and comes to a startling conclusion that virtual worlds are just as real as the real world you think you're sitting in now. This is a sort of, in philosophy, it's not an unusual hypothesis. Uh, and he's, his starting point there is very interesting. So you're all sitting looking this way in this room now. And in time, inside your head, you all have consciousness. That is a little metaverse. You're not actually, see, you're not actually experiencing the real world directly. Your, your brain is taking sensory data in. And in your mind, in your brain, you're reconstructing and rebuilding that world, which is what consciousness is. Okay? So that your consciousness is virtual in itself. He takes that one step further and said, well, there are all sorts of other things, like using your smartphone or going out into the world and finding things on Wikipedia or YouTube that are mere extensions of consciousness. So he includes that, he calls that the extended mind. And in learning, this is quite important because, of course, through the history of learning technology, we've increasingly done that, especially in the 20th and 21st century. How much of your time do you spend on a smartphone, on a laptop, watching Netflix, being in some other world? It has increased steadily. I mean, my generation watched five hours of television seven nights a week for their whole lives. <laughs> Spent an enormous amount of time staring into this other space, being in that other space. Kids now, of course, play an enormous amount of games or will be in their smartphones or will be in social media. But the, what's interesting about Clark and Chalmers is it's quite, it's quite a revolutionary thought in terms of learning that we should think of consciousness as stretching out through technology into knowledge and skills. And that's a philosophical position, but it's an interesting psychological position as, as well, I think. Because it, it, it makes learning tech more well, you know, you, you don't worry about learning tech. <laughs> you know, that's perfectly natural. You know, nobody worries about pens and pencils, but that was the tech of its day, you know? Writing is a technology. It was only invented four times in the history of our species, once in Egypt, once in Mesopotamia, once in Mesoamerica, once in China. The whole world changed then. It changed when we had broadcast media, suddenly we watched screens. It changed when we had computers, then the internet, and it will change again because of AI 
and 3D technology. But don't worry about it. Don't rant and rail about it. It's just an extension of consciousness would be Chalmers' point. And quite often, at these, I've been coming to this conference for a long time, and when you speak about AI, you know, sometimes I'm amazed that there are people coming to the conference who really hate technology. You go, well, what? <laughs> it's called online educator, guys. You know, why are you here? If it was a banking conference in the hotel over the road, you wouldn't have full people hate, that hate money. But, you know, <laughs> in this industry, we see it like, like, well, you know, I'm going to pay a couple of grand, but I don't like this stuff. It's like going to a restaurant, you don't like the, the cuisine, you know, the food. So I think, you know, I think it makes us, I found that the work of Chalmers in particular has made me relax more about the efficacy, the affordances of technology. Yeah. That makes sense. And I think we'll pick up on those themes when we get to our summing up thing, because it's kind of looking towards yeah, yeah. the future. Yeah, no yeah. So next we have Douglas Carl Engelbart. Uh, 1925 to 2013. Um, in December 1950, this man realised he had no career goals other than a steady job, getting married and living happily ever after, and he enumerated his career priorities like this. Number one, he would focus his career on making the world a better place. Notable. Number two, any serious effort to make the world better would require some kind of organised effort that harnessed the collective human intellect of all the people to contribute to effective solutions. Number three, if you could dramatically improve how we do that, you'd be boosting every effort on the planet to solve important problems. The sooner the better. Number four, computers could be the vehicle for dramatically improving this capability. It's been amazing to read a life plan like that, so simply formulated, and then to look at what resulted. Engelbert was, Engelbart was instrumental in establishing human-computer interaction as an area of technical and psychological research. That's a fairly big one on its, in itself. Playing an instrumental role in the invention of the computer mouse. So those mice you use every day, invented those. Joystick and trackable, also bitmax screens and hypertext. Hypertext. <laughs> Let's sink in for a second. These and other prophetic features were shown in his famous Mother of All Demos in 1968. So he was a real visionary, this guy. And yet throughout his early career, his vision met with apathy, lack of interest and investment from his employers. And it was only retrospectively really recognised um, that all this technology that makes the world go round now, um, he had done so much to bring about. But Donald, I think the major interest for, for us here is in his interest about his ideas about collective intelligence, if we go back to that original life plan. Yeah, so he's famous for this mother of all demonstrations, and he very famously was the first person really to put a mouse tracker ball joystick with a bitmap screen, hypertext, all in one place. And when he demoed it to people, it did blow people's minds, but it, it was a bit premature. The technology wasn't good enough to be enacted immediately. So that was 1968, so it was a long time ago, but computers came, you know, home computers came really into the early 80s, really, when that, that started to happen for real. But... Very interesting. The second thing that is actually probably be, will be remembered for more is his views of collective intelligence. So remember the theme here, extended mind, beyond cognition. He, there was a guy before him called Vannemar Bush who wrote an incredibly famous essay called As We May Think. Vannemar Bush was a huge figure in American politics. Post-war, he got government working with the universities, working uh, with corporates. And that eventually was so successful, it led to the moon landing and, of course, uh, the Manhattan Project. These were two amazingly successful projects. But the framework for that, the innovation, was getting people together, giving them a system that allowed them to share knowledge. And that's what led to the success of 1969. Some of us are old enough to remember seeing that live enough on television. Uh, but... Engelbert was, was a big fan of Anna Bush, had read that stuff, and his aim was to take that one step forward into a proto-internet idea, which is, let's start sharing knowledge. It was so successful in getting us to the moon, so successful in the Manhattan Project, that we should think about using this for real way be before the internet. So he came up with a sort of schema or theory around collective intelligence. So the history of intelligence up to that point had been Binet in France, Eisnick, the whole IQ thing, you know, Cyril Burton in England and so on. And he was the first to think of the hive mind and try to measure 
collective intelligence. So he had a series of measures about success and impact and so on. So that was an amazing extension from the view of innovation and science as being the work of an individual, publishing papers and so on, to the hive mind or collective intelligence, which would feed back into achieving real things in the real world. And I, I still think the Americans are way, way ahead of other people on this. Uh, I think in Europe we still, you know, we have no big tech companies here, but we have a very big separation between corporate university systems and government. There's a big anti-corporate feeling in universities and, and you know, so we, we don't have that collective intelligence view in this continent, I don't think. Uh, having studied and worked in America, I think they have a, a very different view, which is why I think they have been massively successful in these areas. Uh, because they understand that the, the more eyeballs and more brains you have in problems, the better. And that was his idea, in a sense. Uh, that notion of collective intelligence, a sh group process, shared memory, which is now extant on Wikipedia, and the shared knowledge bases, of course, on the internet. So he was a real visionary in that sense. To call our next theorist the controversial figure is, I think, a massive understatement. In England, as we speak, we are approaching panto season where villains are hissed and booed in theatres up and down the land and trigger warnings issued, and perhaps we should issue one now because Musk is in many quarters as reviled a figure as Uncle Abenezer in the Aladdin pantomime. Get your hisses and boos out of the way now. <laughs> but here's the facts. <laughs> Elon Reeve Musk, FRS, fellow of the Royal Society, August British Institution, is the founder, CEO, and chief engineer of SpaceX, angel investor, CEO, and product architect of Tesla, founder of The Boring Company, I'm sure it's not boring, co-founder of Neuralink and OpenAI, president of the Musk Foundation, and most recently owner and CEO, and in some people's eyes, destroyer of Twitter. With an estimated net worth of around 181 billion, Musk is the wealthiest person on the planet. Born and grew up in South Africa, educated at the University of Pretoria, Queen's University of Canada, University of Pennsylvania and Stanford, where he dropped out to pursue a business career in what is now time-honoured tech entrepreneur fashion. So the melding of industry and universities is so good in the US that they drop out. They don't have to hang around and get their degrees. They go out and um, found multi-billion dollar uh, tech, tech companies. Donald, I know you're a fan. I, I hesitate to say fanboy. But debates over whether he is in fact hero or villain are probably best conducted on the platform he now owns, Twitter, where I know you champion his cause. For our purpose today, it is Neuralink we're most interested in, isn't, isn't it? So tell us about the Pong playing monkeys, Donald. Yeah, so I'm, I'm less interested in the ad hominem views of Elon Musk. I don't really care about Elon Musk. I don't know him, you know, but I am interested in what he has achieved. And Neuralink is one, OpenAI is another, and Starlink is a third. And this fits within the envelope of our theme of uh, uh, you know, the extended mind. So Neuralink itself, these, these companies were all started in 2014, 15, and 16, all in a little cluster, as it were. And if you go back and look at what Musk said about them, he had some quite grandiose claims for them. But actually, he wasn't far wrong. So Neuralink is perhaps the most interesting in terms of our theme because before Neuralink, there was hundreds of thousands of people had obviously cochlear implants, I have glasses, people have arrays in their head, paraplegics and so on. So this technology was around to help people as a social good. It was mostly for people who had serious injuries, strokes, for example, or locked-in syndrome. So he set up Neuralink with that goal to solve that problem using very, very smart technology and robots that injected in your head. So. The first experiment was with the pigs, don't worry about that. The really interesting one was with Pager the monkey. So Pager sits and he's, Pager the monkey is playing the, that old computer game Pong. The ball's bouncing around the screen. And he's getting a reward of a banana milkshake through a straw. And of course, the monkey learns to play Pong really quickly because he's been fed a banana milkshake. But once he starts learning it, remember the monkey's got an array in his brain as well, they unplug it. The monkey doesn't know it's been unplugged, but the monkey plays Pong just as well with it unplugged using the array. So this array of fibers, about 2,000 of them, sh very shallow in the brain, no bleed, are that's sending out tons of data, which is then using AI to interpret that data to play Pong. So you're literally playing Pong with your mind. Okay? Now this is the first step, of course, because remember the aim is to tackle people, paraplegics, quadriplegics, locked-in syndrome, all those 
very serious problems, obviously. And Andy's looking beyond that as well into perhaps looking at mental illness. So imagine, for example, and there's a very good podcast he has on this, imagine if we could use this sort of technology to eliminate depression. Now, depression is a cause of mass suffering globally. Imagine if you came up with a technology that could solve or even partially solve depression without pharmaceuticals. What a, a great achievement. The reduction in suffering on that alone is worth this. So Neuralink, I think, is a perfect example of this extended mind. You know, you're literally thinking and something's happening. And, of course, he's also looking at it being the new interface. The new interface, is that he calls you know, these things meat fingers, you know. I'm sure you've made that mistake on your mobile phone. You're doing this, you know. But he thinks that if we can crack this, we will be, in a sense, a, taking action at the speed of thought, if that makes sense. In other words, we think it, it happens. And that's the ultimate in frictionless interfaces, the ultimate in the extended mind. So I think Neuralink is a fascinating, it's on a fascinating trajectory because he's already achieved this with the monkey experiment. Just have a look. If you've not seen that, you're, it's... Truly astounding piece of video when you see this in action. But of course, if you go, then, he, then he, of course, he started OpenAI because all the AI interpretation of this data, and OpenAI has been responsible for all these transformers. So you know how these students who are writing essays, and that's all, that's all, that was Elon Musk who started that. He no longer has anything to do with it. But huge success in AI has come out of that as well. And who would deny that AI is part of the extended mind phenomenon? We now have things out there that don't, they're competent without without consciousness, but they can beat every one of you at chess, poker, go. Any, anybody in this room would be defeated by these AI agents. So we're now in a world where it's not just the mind being extended, we've discussed that, we actually have entities and agents out in the world now that can actually beat our own minds. It's not the extension of mind, it's a challenge to us, of course. So, and Musk has been right at the middle of this. Without OpenAI, those transformers would not have matured as quickly as they have, and they are amazing things. I mean, myself and Callum, we work with those every day, and they, they are changing the world. You know, if you look at AlphaFold from DeepMind, part of Google, AlphaFold will save literally hundreds of, mil hundreds of millions of hours of research on protein folding that you would have had to have done in a lab because it predicts the shape of proteins when they, when they fold. So, and then there's Starlink. And who would doubt that Starlink is probably one of the most contributory factors to winning the Ukraine war, because I think Ukraine will win, but all the comms on the front line have come from Musk and the Starlink, which is a network of low-orbit satellites that cover the entire globe. No shadow. You can receive the internet, 5G, anywhere in Africa. I spent a number of times uh, going to Africa, and the problem was always infrastructure, because it was all around the coast through cables. Once you have Starlink and you have complete global coverage, the extended mind, the hive mind, becomes a truly global mind because you can get to anyone with the sort of online learning that we are supposed to be doing. And I think that holds great hope for getting rid of this east-west, north-south digital divide thing. That's the sort of technology that will really help people out there, the infrastructure build. So Neuralink, OpenAI, and Starlink, I think Musk, funnily enough, you know, we get out there, Tesla, yeah. or Twitter, who cares? That stuff really matters to me because I think it already has changed the world and will continue to do so. Yeah, and on the Starlink uh, front, does anybody here work in the maritime industry at all, shipping? No, I mean, it's a bit of a niche, but it, 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 it's kind of a huge niche uh, in, in, in training. I've recently been doing some work in that area. Um, what I didn't realise is that um, they don't have internet connectivity on a lot of ships, and they go away for like two, three years at a time, and they, they had to put a kind of USB stick in to the, to, the, uh, to the server at the beginning and at the end of the voyage, and everything is an installed solution. While the rest of us are all on cloud services, they're still operating on that. And they, the, the, the only thing that's changing that, because Inmarsat is dragging its heels, is Starlink. Right? It's now changing it. So that bit of industry is kind of coming up to date as well. And, and, and for a lot of the, the, the mobile internet, it's, it's really pretty important. Okay, time to sum up. So, Donald... Can I ask you now to do that Janus-headed thing that we do in the month we named after Janus, January, very often, looking both back and forward, and sum up what all this amounts to for learning, while looking forward to where it's taking us with the rise of AI and so on. You want to continue those thoughts? Yeah, well, I think we're here at a Learning Technologies Conference, 
And I have been coming to this conference for a long time, and I've always had a positive trajectory in this stuff because I think it will win in the end, and it will win in the end because most learners use it every day. So if we look at, let's take AI as an example of this extended mind. Uh, you know, people think oh, AI doesn't play any role in learning. <laughs> Are you kidding me? You don't use Google? Google is pure AI. Any academics here doesn't use Google Scholar? I mean, I remember doing postgraduate work before Google Scholar. I spent six months of my life wandering up and down library shelves trying to find journals. Uh, the world was very different then. I think they should absolutely take six months off every PhD now because it's so easy to find citations and done automatically. Will they do that? No, I don't think so. <laughs> But the interesting thing is about the profound effect which this technology, this extended mind, you know, this hive mind thing has had on learning. Google's an obvious example, but if any of you are on any social media, every single social media service is mediated by AI. That's why you don't get dick pics appearing every five minutes on TikTok or, or, uh, or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, you know? It has an immense role to play, a protective role, but also in selecting uh, things which you will learn on social media. But it's also true in personalized learning. If you're going to have any hope in achieving the personalized learning goal, which I think is the ultimate goal on adaptive learning systems, then you have very smart software that will sit a bit like the sat-nav in your car, a GPS. So if you go off course, if you drive from Berlin to Leipzig and you get off, you make a wrong turn, of course the sat-nav system gets you back on, on course. That's what you need for students. And that's now possible. You know, these AI tutors really do this. The adaptive systems work beautifully. How many universities use them? Hardly any. Hardly any. And yet out there in the real world, we use this stuff all the time, every five minutes, on our phones, on our laptops, in our car, speaking to Alexa in the house, and we're still lecturing. It's totally and utterly bizarre. Uh, you know, we have this... You, you have the, we have this huge lag, you know, technology's out there and we're, sociology's always behind technology, I think, but pedagogy's always behind sociology, you know, it seems like it's go back to Plato was le lecturing, you know, in the academy. So I think we're finally getting to a position now where this really smart technology is coming in, which we've discussed today, AI, uh, certainly in the VR, VR and the metaverse type stuff, the metaverse will be built by AI, your avatars will be created by AI, there will be AI avatars on the metaverse, and that will be a place where you'll learn by doing, because what have we done for the last 20, 30, 40 years in my lifetime? We've poured money into flat 2D learning. Our universities are full of people pumping out papers that hardly anybody reads. We're stuck in a 2D world of learning, 2D screens, writing, and the world's falling apart. And we have Trump, we have Brexit, we have fascist governments in Italy, we have look what's happening in Sweden. So th this is a big social import. If we don't get our act together and, and think about how people should be taught vocationally and practically, we're in real trouble here. I really do believe that politically. I think, you know, the, you know we have the Erasmus system in, in Europe now, 28 billion euros to fly rich kids around Europe <laughs> in an era of climate change. That makes big sense. That makes a lot of sense to me. So I think, uh, you know, if we just grasp this opportunity for this smart technology, we'll be introduced what good teachers do into the process. And that's what we've always wanted. It's always been a bit flat. You know, if you look at these exhibitors, Panopto Culture out there, they're all just recording lectures. I've come, you know, it never used to be like that at this conference. I've come to all these vendors out there. It's lecture recording of video. How bizarre. I think people have gone back 10 years. You know, this is totally bizarre. When kids are using really smart technology there all the time, a lot of the time to cheat, by the way, Chegg is out there, a cheat site, with a, with a stand. <laughs> it's unbelievable. So, you know, we have to be careful here. I think we have to grasp the future technology and stop just simply taking what we used to do, like a lecture, and putting it on the web <laughs> and thinking that solves a problem. It well, solves no problems. Perhaps what we need to do is more recording of podcasts. Exactly, John. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, enough for us for, for the moment. It's time for another... If, if you have any questions about that, and specifically on the, 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 the extended mind themes, one over here, Callum. This is so great, actually, normally, because we do the podcast. It's very enjoyable. Oh, thank you. We'd never had a chance before to do a live Q&A yeah. like this, and it's really quite exciting. Uh, hi, Tom here from Netherlands. I wonder, do you know why the educational branch is so old-fashioned? Yeah, it, well, it's a huge question in a 
a, a huge number of things to say that, but I think like institutional learning has become precisely that, institutions, which in a sense have begun to serve themselves. So, you know, I, I, I've got a professorship, I teach in university, I've taught in the US, I've taught in Europe, I've taught in universities, and you always get asked to lecture, <laughs> you know, no matter what you want, because they've got lecture halls. The buildings, the QA systems, the institutional funding, the practice, the culture is all about one person like this, one person talking to many. And it hasn't moved forward. The fundamental problem, I think, here is still the dominant university system came out of Central Europe, Bologna and so on. Uh, it was founded in religion. It was based on talking at people from a lectern. You still, if you go into any lecture theatre, you'll see a lectern. People, it's just like, go into any church in Berlin, you'll see the same thing. You'll see a pulpit, a lectern and rows. And that's what's in our universities because it came from that origin. Now that system spread around the whole globe. We took the European system of degrees. It was a Prussian-German system that actually, you know, all those words come from, uh, from the Prussian system originally. And it got locked in. But the big mistake now is to imagine that every teacher has to be a researcher. That's madness to me. Absolute madness. Uh, uh, because I'll give, you, I'll give you a very practical example. My, my sister and mother were both nurses, okay? Spent a lifetime being nurses, did a great job as nurses, proud of them. They couldn't be a nurse in England now because they're working class women who have to get a degree to be a nurse. It's totally, total madness. And we have 40,000 vacancies for nurses in the UK. And we have to import labor from third world countries who desperately need those skills themselves. So the mass migration of Nigerian nurses into England, they've been trained in Nigeria who can't afford to lose those skills. How mad is this system when my mother and sister who were nurses could not be that now? Because universities have grabbed nursing. They had a plan in England to make all policemen have degrees. Are you crazy? And that's what's happened. We've sucked the money up into the higher education system in England. I think it's much better in Germany, Switzerland, and Austria have had really brilliant uh, vocational learning apprenticeship systems. That's why they're the strongest economies in Europe, I think. But uh, the rest of the world, in England and America especially, has sucked the cash into higher education and starved vocational education, starved it of money, certainly in the UK. We turned all our polytechnics into universities in 1992. And we wonder why we have skill shortages why we have 40,000 vacancies in nursing and other areas. I'm sorry, I'm getting really political here all of a sudden. <laughs> you hit, hit a hot but button there. Anybody else like to try and hit answer. another hot button? Oh, many, yeah. <laughs> Hi. Uh, it's going off beam a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Extended mind, folks. <laughs> um, I'm Robin, and this is Martin. We're both from the University of Twente, and we uh, set up podcasting within our university. Ah, great. Oh, well teachers. done. Our fellow uh, sufferers. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it was kind of funny. We saw that, uh, especially Martin, as part of the video team studio, he got a lot of questions from students, students who are very active and, for instance, doing a solar team, uh, which is very active at, your, at our university. Um, they want to be involved. So I have actually two questions. The first one was about uh, informal teaching. How can we involve students, perhaps, in the recording of uh, podcasts in general? Um, and the second one is... Can we also use podcast as a teaching activity for the students, as an activational method? Well, I, I mean, absolutely. It's sort of very odd that hundreds of millions of people are listening to podcasts for learning. I mean, I listen to philosophy, politics, all sorts of topics, and yet we don't use them for learning in our institutions. That's sort of weird, isn't it? Very strange that they're so popular and so useful, but we don't use them. But that goes back to the praxis thing. You know, the practice in universities is just, it's just deeply embedded and very difficult to change. But there's, I think it's a really interesting point about students. I've been yeah. involved in some platform builds around informal learning. And one of the most amazing successes you have is if you allow people to upload video and audio, students. So rather than have this madness of get the only assessment method being writing essays, which every, of course, students either buy them for $100 from an essay mill, uh, that, and if you don't think that happens, look, look, just take a note of some of the companies that exist around major universities and cities. Or they're now increasingly using AI to write the damn essays. Now, you won't know about this as an academic because uh, Turnitin won't catch it. It's all fresh, fresh meat, it's fresh text. 
this is happening. Now, imagine a system where we have actual learn by doing, which I would hope would happen, or more continuous assessment, or certainly the uploading of actual presentations by students on video and audio. Uh, and we've had a huge success in that in corporate learning as well. So you're right, I think people are quite eager to do contemporary things, yeah. but none of the infrastructure and technology, none of the traditional LMS, God almighty, you know, 1990s technology. And the, that's what it is, really. You know, Jesus. It's just a, a store, a dark cellar of stuff <laughs> that nobody really likes. <laughs> you know? but, but on the subject of infrastructure, I, I, I said I went to Sussex University, and I don't know if it's um, atypical. I'm sure it's not. But we had radio stations. We, we had... Uh, we, there was a media... There was a, a TV society. I was a member of them. And um, we had a, a, a media studio where you could kind of film interviews and stuff like that. Um, when, I, when I went to New York with, with my band, we, we went out to Long Island. Loads of universities, colleges there had radio stations of their own. I mean, in many institutions, the, the, the recording gear is there. And I said the technical bar is reasonably low for podcasts. It, it, it could easily be done. And I know there are some academics who, who do podcasts, and some actually, I, I slightly disagree, are really quite good. I'm, I'm following one called The History of Philosophy, without any gaps, which really literally is that. It's exhaustive. But the, um, the narrator is, the lecturer is very engaging, he's very good at it. I think it certainly can work, and it'd be great to see more of it as being a mainstream part of education. I think every, every institution should be doing podcasts because they're so universally liked and used. And interestingly, unlike other medium, it's a very strong learning strand to podcasting. You know, in England, the BBC series in our time is philosophy, politics. They have, I think it's up to 900, between 900 and 1,000 podcasts. The, view, the listening figures are phenomenal. There's this huge thirst for knowledge in history, politics, philosophy that was unmet before. And podcasts sort of filled that gap. I think for people, it became, it was a real surprise. Technology is full of surprise. Nobody predicted podcasts. Imagine coming to this conference 20 years ago and say, oh no, actually people will be just listening to audio all day. <laughs> Are you kidding me? But they actually do, which is why I really admire you guys for just getting out there and doing it in your institution. You know, yeah. it's, it's a worthy thing. Big round of applause for the podcasters who've just gone and done it. <laughs> JFDI. Any more questions for you, George? One, one down here, come. Well, first of all, thank you for uh, allowing me to sit in. At, I just missed my beer, but otherwise it feels like listening to you uh, at the bar. Um, second remark is, I, I miss Kate. Ah. But my question is, if the extended mind is indeed evolving and growing and turning into a global mind or more global minds, why would I actually need to learn stuff? Why would I would need to think stuff? And my question would be to you guys, what would you like to learn if there is this global mind that does all the things that you need to do to live for you? I'll take the first one. Kate is doing the Christmas markets. <laughs> it's a stereotype here, but she, she has limited interest in the, the industry. That's John's partner, by the way. Kate. Yeah, she's, uh, she's my partner, um, Kate Fitzgerald, who whose dulcet tones introduce every um, episode, yeah. Next year, maybe she'll come and we'll be able to get her in here to, to actually do that. I think this question often is framed in another sort of way, which is, you know, we have Google, why teach anybody anything? Which I think is the wrong answer to the wrong question in many ways. Because to be a functioning, rational being and to live in the world and grow and develop, you need to have a critical faculty. And you do need knowledge for that but you need it in long-term memory, okay? So I don't want to walk into a surgeon who is looking up Google every five minutes as, the, as he or she cuts me open. In actual fact, skills are still necessary, and uh, Google is largely a, a repository of knowledge, not skills. And that's why I go back to the nursing type thing. You know, these are skilled individuals who need to have real practice in real institutions, which is why this situated learning stuff is interesting. I really do think that nurses should be learning in hospitals and not in a lecture room. I really do believe that. And I know some of these courses where the nurses are sitting being taught Jean-Paul Sartre in philosophy courses and wondering what the hell's going on. It doesn't make any sense. So I th that, that's why, you know, my appeal would be to an interesting thing happens when all that learn by doing stuff is in the metaverse as well. 
So I've been heavily involved in a lot of VR projects. That's great, because suddenly we can reinstate skills-based learning. You can actually do it in a safe environment for free in a 3D world, which is what these extended mind people have been telling us. So I think the next phase of, of technology will be truly wondrous once we crack that, and I think that's definitely coming. And I'm also positive about the metaverse thing. And yeah, I think I'm the only person in this whole conference who, who's positive about Elon Musk. But <laughs> uh, I think things are happening very quickly on that front. Okay. Any more for any more? One more over there. Come on. Hello there. Pete Fullarm from Upskill People. Not exactly an extended mind question, but I notice you've got your notes and you've scripted it beforehand. I'm interested in the process you go through to prepare for the podcast. Oh, I, oh, I write a script. I, years ago, somebody told me that that that, that um, Fred Astaire and uh, Bing Crosby had to work together, and um, they said it was a nightmare because Fred Astaire had to practice everything absolutely to death, every single step that he did, uh, and it was the same with the singing when they went into the studio and and, and the filming. Um, he liked to prepare beforehand. He 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 didn't improvise at all. Bing Crosby was absolutely the opposite. You, you stand him up anywhere and he would do the singing, do the talking, do the, you know, the walking, the dancing and all the rest of it. And people are completely different like that. And I, I, I found that my way is that I have to write everything. So I'm a writer, I have to write the script. Otherwise, I'll just stand here like a goldfish opening and closing my mouth. So I have to write in order to have something kind of sensible to come out of it, basically. And Donald is very different. Donald is a wonder to me. I've seen him presenting in so many forums, and um, just an extremely sharp mind and does that. Yeah, because I had written all these blogs, 200-plus blogs on individual learning theorists long before this. It was a gargantuan effortless, by the way. <laughs> but over years, you know, because I'd run companies and found... I found that when you run learning companies and you hire all these people who are supposed to be learning professionals, they didn't actually know anything about learning at all. It absolutely astonished me when I first came into this industry. You know, I sat in a room and... You know, <laughs> Like, who is this? Who is this uh, Abraham Maslow? I went back and said, what? <laughs> what is that? It's got no relevance to me whatsoever. All this old theory, Bloom, Maslow, Carpaccio, all this junk that was hanging around. It was all 60 and 50-year-old theory. I wasn't used to that as a researcher. And then I was asking people, even a lot of people didn't even know those names. They knew no, you say, can you name me five people, you know, intellectuals in your field and learning? Some people just look at me blankly. No idea. So I wrote all these. They were really internal training things. And then we eventually got, after many years, there were... 200 of them, and we did the 17 podcasts, but because they were written, they were all in my mind, as it were, so I just needed to read them again. You know, if you write something with passion, you still tend to remember it more. But the great thing about John is we, we, we do, we've done 17 of these, I think, is it? 17? Yeah. This is the 18th. 18th. Yeah. And we'd, I don't think you do much editing, because when I listen to them again, occasionally I swear because I'm Scottish. <laughs> so if something weird like that happens, you have to be a wee bit careful. But I think pr pretty much there's not a hell of a lot of editing goes on afterwards. Yeah, we it? take out some kind of yeah. funny little bits and pauses and, and, yeah. and the bits where, you know, I forget my own name and, 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 yeah. and so on. But we, we, we generally let it run because, the, the, you know, the thing has a flow to it and a, and a rhythm, you know. Yeah, I had notes today because... It's a bit, bit, you know, it's a bit different because normally if I'm doing this over Zoom in my, in my yeah, it is home, different. and so I'm not going to crash and burn here, you know. But <laughs> normally I do it without notes because I know I, I do I read the stuff that I've written, and then it's all fresh in my mind. And I think that's better to do it without notes, you know. To, you know, going back to that informal learning thing we talked about earlier, I think when people start reading scripts, it, the listener can spot it within seconds. You know, it's really obvious. So. Uh, we tend to do it pretty yeah. freewheeling, unscripted. Not and I think you, I you need a mix, mixture of the kind of spontaneity and the informality, and but also a bit of reassurance that there's some kind of structure there that we know where we are. You know, oh, there's a sting. That bit's over. Here's another bit. We're going to talk about someone else. Now we're we're getting towards the end. We're summing up and and, and yep. so on. So you know when to uh, stop walking your dog and take it home. I think we're going to have to call that it because it's been a very long session. Thank you so much for coming along, but also staying with us for, for, for such an extended um, thing. Thank you, Donald, very much for yet a, a, another wonderful session. And thank you guys as well. I'd like to give you a On Learning comes from the Learning Hack team and is produced by John Halmer. Sound edit is by Isaac Peacock. Social media by Jay Curtis. Graphics by David O'Connor. 
The podcast is based on a series of blog posts written by Donald Clark and would like to thank Donald for his kind collaboration in this project and Callum Clark for technical help with the recording at Online Educa. This is the last episode of our third season, but the series will recommence in January. In the meantime, look out for surprise bonus episodes. Both John and I would like to add a special thank you to the young man named Phil, who helped us get to the airport on our last day in Berlin. Phil, we don't know your surname, but without your kind intervention, we definitely would have missed our plane.